All right, we're in Colossians. Open your Bibles to chapter 2 of Colossians. We're in verses 8 through 15. We're going to read it. We're going to talk about a few things. We're going to pray, and then we're going to read it again, and then we're going to jump in. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. As many of you know, we use the New American Standard Bible. There's one in front of you if you need it. If you need to take it home, that's fine too. It's yours. Colossians 2. Oh, great verses for us, church. Just great verses for us. I don't know that there's any verses that aren't great for us, but these are great for us. Colossians chapter, chapter 2, starting at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Now, if you recall, right, Paul's writing this letter because in, in, in the area of Colossae where the church is at, there's some false teaching, false information, heresy, uh, heretics, whatever you want to call it. And they're, they're doing fine, but he's, he, so he's encouraging and warning at the same time, right? So see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than captivating you according to Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made full, complete. It's the same root word. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, you crucified your flesh to sin. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He did what? He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Thank you, Jesus. Having canceled out the certificate of debt that you owed, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And in doing so, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The cross is a big thing. The cross is everything. Commenting on Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher and theologian, declared this. He says, in removing from Christianity its ability to shock. See, what God did through Christ on the cross was shocking. And it's still tripping people up today. Amen for that. It is altogether destroyed. If it loses its ability to shock, it becomes altogether destroyed. It becomes a superficial thing, incapable of inflicting deep wounds or of healing them. Jesus came to take action against sin. Amen? Listen to this. In his novel, the novel is called The Chain, Paul Wellman shared a scintillating story attributed to the South. It is known as the fourth temptation. Do you remember Jesus went to the wilderness and he was tempted how many times? Three times. So this legend in the south is called the fourth temptation. According to this beautiful legend, after Jesus had emerged victoriously from his wilderness temptations, after living courageously and triumphantly throughout his ministry, 
after his apostles failed, enemies and friends conspired in crime, then while Jesus was hanging in excruciating pain on the cross, the devil returned and whispered in his ear, they aren't worth it. They aren't worth it, Lord. And it was then, according to the story, that the master was heard to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The devil did not want Jesus to die on that cross. The cross is that important. Another story, a Flemish sculptor was extremely poor. And he frequently went without food and worked in a clammy little studio. It was bitter cold the night that he finished his masterpiece. The thoughtful and meticulous artist was concerned lest the firm, fresh clay of his creation should freeze and crack. He had too much of himself in the design to run the risk of it being ruined. And so he wrapped it in the warmest coat that he had. And that night he died from exposure because he was so cold. But his cherished statuette was found unharmed. The warmth of sacrifice had saved it. In some such thoughtful way, beyond our ability to conceive or comprehend, the cross is God's voluntary cloak of sacrifice draped in mercy over his creation. Isn't that fantastic? God is so good to us, church. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are humbled to be here. We're here because of what you did on the cross. We're brothers and sisters in Christ because of what you did on the cross. You, you've forgiven us and you've nailed our indebtedness to the cross. God, we, we owe you our very lives and you, you took that punishment for us on the cross. Lord, we just thank you so much. We love you. And we pray, Lord, that when we're through with our text this morning, that we have a deeper understanding of who you are, your love for us, and the love that you have the love that you would have us to have for one another because of the cross. Thank you for forgiving us, Lord. Thank you for loving us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. I want to read our text again. Let's do that again. Let's read our verses again. Starting in verse 8, the importance of the cross. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. See, people are trying to get us steered away from the cross, steered away from Jesus. Any portion that they can steer us away from Jesus is a victory for the enemy. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, empty deception according to the tradition of men, the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells. And in him you and I have been made complete in him we are full, we are complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of your body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, your sinful nature, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That's what he did to you through the person of Jesus Christ. When you were dead in your transgressions, did you know that? You were walking, but you were a dead man walking. You were a dead woman walking. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. <laughs> That's what he did. Having forgiven us 
all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Put it, go ahead and put a picture of that book. Um, in 2011, Sky Jafani wrote a book called With. I don't know if you've read it. It's a great book. And the book asks a pretty pointed question. It asks, are we desiring God or just using him? Are we desiring God or are we just using him? Sky goes on to say this. He says, I explore five postures of relating to God, our posture towards God. Life under God, life over God, life from God, life for God, and life with God. The book explains why the first four are very popular, including within evangelical churches, but how each fails to deliver from fear or generate lives of faith, hope, and love. Life with God, however, stands at the heart of the gospel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. He goes on to say, to begin with, we must understand how the life with God posture differs from the other four. Life under, over, from, and for God, each seeks to use God to achieve some other goal. God is seen as a means to an end. For example, life from God uses him to supply our material desires. Life over God uses him as the source of principles or laws. Life under God tries to manipulate God through obedience in order to secure blessings and to avoid calamity. And life for God uses him and his mission to gain a sense of direction and purpose. But life with God is different because its goal is not to use God, its goal is God. He ceases to be a device that we employ or commodity we consume. Instead, God himself becomes the focus of our desire. <laughs> Amen? So check this out. Before we toggle through each verse one at a time, I want to give you an overview of just how important it is that we understand that we are in Christ and we are with Christ and Christ is in us and he's with us. Look at this. We're going to see the words in him three times in verses 9, 10, and 11. And then we're going to see with him three times in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 you'll see in him. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Verse 10. In him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then look at with him three times. Verse 12 and 13. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Isn't that awesome? We are in him and we are with him. He is in us. 
and he is with us. Regardless of the weeks that we had, it changes nothing. We are full. We can live life every day, every week, every month, every year, in spite of what's going on, completely full because of who Christ is and because he is in us and with us. Does that bless your soul? Indeed, church, the cross makes everything right again. The cross makes everything right again. It allows us to be in him and with him. It empowers us to live victoriously and to navigate through what is and what isn't. What makes sense and what doesn't make sense. It's only through the cross and our knowledge of the cross and Jesus Christ and all his fullness that dwells in us that allows us to navigate through this thing called life. All the ups and the downs and the things that make no sense can be made sense through the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8 and just check out the progression of what happens in 8, 9, and 10. Verse 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception rather than according to Christ. Okay, well, I'm okay with that so far. It's like, okay, yeah, keep your eyes focused on Christ. Verse 9 says, because see, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, yeah, it's God in the flesh. I get that. Then verse 10 says, yeah, but in him, you are also full. He's full, and so are you. That's why we focus on Christ in verse 8, because he's full in verse 9, and we're full because of our association with him through baptism. Wow. Glory be to God. See, church, heresy, what's going on, false teaching, right? Bad teaching. Heresy, therefore, is anything that diverts us from the fullness of Christ and our fullness, the fullness of Christ and our fullness in or with Christ. Anything that diverts us from the fullness of Jesus Christ and our fullness in him or with him is false teaching. Anything. So perhaps the enemy can't get us to deny Christ and so he tries to divert us from Christ. Okay, go ahead. Don't deny him. But let me divert you. Let me cheapen him. Let me water him down. Let's read verse 8. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the principles of the the world, rather than according to Christ. Does anybody here know what philosophy means? Is philosophy good or bad? Philosophy means the pursuit or love of wisdom. So is philosophy good or bad? If it's good philosophy, it's good. If it's bad philosophy, it's bad. Right? It depends on what the source of our wisdom is. That's what Paul is saying. If it's rooted in Christ, you're good. If it's rooted in anything else, it fails in comparison. Paul is not warning about all philosophy. He's just warning about false philosophy. The traditions of men, the elementary principles of this world. Look at Ephesians 5, 6. This must be a thing, because Paul also mentions it in Ephesians. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Church, this is a reality. Paul mentions it in Colossians. He mentions it in Ephesians. He even mentions it to uh, Timothy. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He says, oh, Timothy, I love this next word. Guard. Guard what has been entrusted to you. You, church, have been entrusted the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Guard what's been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Oh, church, guard. May we guard what's been entrusted to us. And look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. This is really amazingly powerful. He says, look, man, we're destroying stuff. What are you doing, Paul? We're just destroying stuff. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of Christ. Every lofty thing. There are some legitimate lofty things that might make sense on some level. We're destroying those as well. We're, taking, we're destroying every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of, of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. No problem. That sounds interesting. That's a lofty thing. Let me see how that measures in obedience to Christ. Yeah, but this makes sense. Uh, th- this seems really intriguing. Great, let's see how that measures up to the obedience of Christ. Whatever you're learning, how does it measure to the obedience of Christ? Are you taking that thought captive, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Not most, not some, not most of the time. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's powerful. Are we taking every thought captive? Are we taking every thought captive Hey, man, we're bombarded with thoughts all day long. If you're like me, I have a very active mind. Some people do. I just have an active mind. And it's tough. It's tough taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and saying, no matter what I'm thinking, no matter what I'm feeling, i got to take that captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Are we taking every thought captive or are our thoughts taking us captive? Are we taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ or do the thoughts that we have take us captive? What is our process for making all of our thoughts obedient to Christ? What does our process look like? How do you do that? Are you doing it? What needs to get better in your process of making all your thoughts captive to Jesus Christ? Because if they're not obedient to Jesus Christ, then who are they obedient to? If your thoughts are not obedient to Jesus Christ, then who are your thoughts obedient to? Usually it's to ourselves. The literal translation, how verse 8 starts out is this. Beware lest any man carry you off as a captive. Beware lest any man carry you off as a captive through his false teaching. So what that means is this, church. We are either conquered, captive, captives. We are either conquered according to man or we're conquered according to Christ. Can't be both. Can't serve two masters, Scripture says. We're either conquered according to man or we're conquered according to Christ. Let's be honest. How captivated are we by Jesus Christ? How captivated are we right now by the person of Jesus Christ in our lives? Paul tells us, look at those first three words of verse 8. I just think they're fascinating. Paul says, see to it. Was anybody a kid? Right? I was a kid once. And your parents would say, uh, hey, see to it. Did you clean your room? No, we'll see to it. Did you mow the lawn? No, we'll see to it. That meant, what what do you think that meant? Do it. Just do it. Paul says, see to it. See to it. How do you feel about Paul telling us to see to it? See to it that no one takes you captive through empty stuff, but see to it that you're captivated by Christ. When we see throughout Scripture things like that, see to it, do this, beware, how does that 
grip us. Do we, do we do that? Do we see to it when the Lord says, see to it? Look at verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. <laughs> I love in this verse how Paul adds what should be, in my opinion, two words that are not needed in that verse. Isn't it fine for Paul to just say, for in him the deity dwells in bodily form. For in him the deity dwells in bodily form. Wouldn't that be enough? In Christ, the deity of God dwells in bodily form. Isn't that sufficient? But see, he has, he has one word for sure. He says, for in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's really the same thing. And then he has another word. He says, all. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Emmanuel, when Christ came, Paul is saying, it's God. He's with us, and we're with him, and we can be just as full. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form through Christ. And we're in him, and he's in us, and we're with him, and he's with us. Paul's making a point about the fullness of Jesus Christ and the fullness we have by identifying with him. God is not just for us, church. He's not just for us. He's for us, but he's not just for us. He's with us, and he's in us. We get to experience both the transcendence and the imminence of God, his holiness, his otherness, his greatness, and his nearness through the person of Jesus Christ and the spirit that he leaves with us. We get to do that. John 14, 9, Jesus says this. He says, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is in us and with us, and we are in him and with him. Conclusion. <laughs> Only in Christ can anyone experience or achieve fullness. Only in Christ can anyone achieve fullness. Apart from him, is emptiness then, isn't it? As philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre says, he says, life without Christ is an empty bubble on the sea of nothingness. Well, that sounds kind of bleak, but it's just true. Let's read verse 10, church. And in Christ, right? So he's full in verse 9, and in him you've been made complete. That complete in verse 10 is the same as fullness in verse 9. Pleroma in the Greek. It's the same root word. In him you've been made full. And he is the head over all rule and authority. He is fully God and fully man. There is a saying, help me complete it. It's not what you know, it's who you know. <laughs> in the case of Christ, it's both who you know, and what you know to keep focused on who you know. In him, we are made complete. In him are all rule and authority, verse 10 tell, tells us. Our fullness of life comes from the fullness of Christ. It's why we study Scripture and study Christ. Did you know that we actually 
partake or share in the divine nature through the person of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Go a little bit to your right and go to 2 Peter towards the end of the New Testament. Got you know, James, which is after Hebrews, and then 1 Peter, then 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. This is amazing, right? This is about, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It's about what you know and who you know. Everybody there? 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We there? Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. In the knowledge of Him. Verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. <laughs> Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Oh man, God's not just for us, church. He's with us and he's in us and we can go through every day completely full because of the fullness of Jesus Christ. It just blesses me so much. Dr. Kenneth Wiest has this quote. It's a redundant quote that I love. And you are in him having been completely filled full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. Right? Take a picture of that and when you're feeling empty, Look at that up. You are in him. You are in him. Completely filled full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. To not declare that, to not understand that, is to deny the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 of Colossians chapter 2. And in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, your heart, your sinful nature. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Church, being with him, in him, and sharing of his nature means that you and I have removed the body of flesh. That's what verse 11 says. Do you know that? You've removed the body of flesh. You have the capacity, the power, the fullness to conquer sin in your life. This is the excuse takeaway verse. We share in his divine nature. And so when we sin, we repent. But we can't blame it on our flesh. He conquered the flesh through the cross and our identification with him. See, we have been forgiven of our sin for sure and delivered from the power of sin in our lives. We've been forgiven of our sin and the power of sin in our lives. Amen? Amen. See, this co-burial and co-resurrection is what is pictured in baptism. Water baptism portrays burial with Christ and coming out of the water depicts the resurrection by the power of God to live a new life. I love this commentary. It says this, this quote, When he died we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried. When he arose again, we arose with him. And we left the grave clothes of the old life behind. 
These Gentile Christians in Colossae had no need to conform to Jewish rules and regulations such as circumcision. This spiritual circumcision was done by Jesus Christ, not by man. It was a circumcision of the heart. Look at Romans 2, verse 29. Paul writes this. He says, but he is a Jew who was one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. I wonder, I wonder, do you and I perform circumcision on the lives of other people? Do we have a list of do's and don'ts that we put on other people? Or do we let God perform circumcision on people's hearts as he grows them and matures them and we pray for them, we come alongside them and we help in in that circumcision of their hearts? Because really, let me ask this question. Go ahead and post this question. How well can you and I really see the artwork of the heart work of God? And we do that. And so we become Pharisees and we put circumcision on other people. Do this and don't do that. And we, and we judge people. But how well can you and I really see the artwork of the heart work of God in other people's lives? And that's really our responsibility is to let God do that work. Let the Holy Spirit do that work. And we come around them and we help and we assist in how the Lord is working in people's lives. That's what it means to be the body of Christ, not to circumcise others, but to come alongside them as God works on their heart. And we all move at different paces and different speeds, don't we? And God loves us the same. And finally, we see the full humanity of Jesus at the end of verse 12. We see his full humanity at the end of verse 12. It says at the end of verse 12 that it was God who raised him from the dead. Look at verse 10. Didn't verse 10 just say that in him you've been made complete and he, Christ, is the head over all rule and authority? Christ could have resurrected himself, but in his full humanity, he didn't do that. God did it. God raised him from the dead. So here we see Christ, fully God and fully man. Verses 13 and 14, let's read those. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He did something. When you were dead, he acted. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees, which was hostile towards us. And he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Thank you, Lord. Again, we see the radical implications and importance of the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 starts out, when you were dead. And it says we were dead two ways. It says when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your sin and your sinful nature, which is going to continue unless you identify with Christ. You were dead because of your past sins and your present and future state will continue to be sinful unless you crucify your flesh. All right, so we're going to take a little detour. I had this thing for the mafia. Ask Pastor Doug. I have this fascination with the mafia. Like, I wish I could have, like, had a life in the mafia, like, not gotten killed and then got saved, and then life would be fine. I'm just fascinated by the mafia. I think, I just think, it's just, it's just I don't know, it just fascinates me. I can't explain it. It's weird. I like, I like watching mafia movies and stuff like that, right? So in the American mafia, there's something called a made man. Did you know that? In the, in the American mafia, a made man is somebody who's fully initiated into the membership of the mafia. And it takes some work to become a made man. It's a big deal to become a made man in the mafia. See, you and I 
are made men and made women as fully initiated members into the body of Christ, okay? See, in the mafia, you must be sponsored. In order to become a made man, you have to be sponsored by another made man. Did you know that? Now let's read verse 13 to see what I'm talking about. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you. He made you. You're a made man. You're a made woman. He made you what? Alive together with him. He's your sponsor. Right? That's how you get initiated into God's kingdom, into the body of Christ. You have to have a sponsor to be fully initiated. Christ is our sponsor. He made us. You're a made man and you're a made woman because of what Christ did on the cross. I just think that's fantastic. I knew one day I'd be a made man. I just didn't know it was not going to be the mafia. <laughs> yeah, man. Check this out. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He didn't just die on the cross. There's so much more to it than, oh, Jesus died on the cross. He died as a criminal. Did you know that? He died as a criminal. And, and the worst kind of criminal, crucifixion, was, was reserved for the worst kind of criminals. Verse 14 just told us that he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees and hostilities or condemnation towards us. And he did what with it? And he nailed it to the cross. See, since people cannot keep the law, the law of God, right, our sinful nature, then our sin becomes a, it's a bill of indebtedness. It's a bill of indebtedness. And so people unable to pay this debt become criminals. Right? We're criminals. We can't pay back our debt. And it's a criminal act in the eyes of God. But, but, you and I, we know a guy. Right? Right? Hey, I know a guy. I know a guy. It'd be fun to walk around town just saying, Psst. I know a guy. Who's the guy you know? Jesus. He's my sponsor. I'm a full member of the body of Christ because I know a guy. Keep this in mind. Christ wasn't nailed to the cross. Our debt, our decrees, our condemnation. That's what that verse tells us. It was our debt, our decrees, and our condemnation is what was nailed to the cross. It's like watching it and going, wait a minute, that's, that, that's the list of my stuff. He's on that cross and that's, that's my certificate of debt. Why, why is he, I don't want to be up there, but why is he up there? And that's my name and your name and everybody in this room's name and anybody and everybody, their names are being nailed. That certificate of debt, it says, was nailed to the cross. Oh, man, it blesses me so much. Lastly, let's read verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. If you remember from our journey through the book of Esther, we said this, that God is in control when? All day, every day. It would be unloving, incorrect, to say that the Lord has the last laugh. That would be unloving and incorrect, but for sure he will always have the last word. On the cross, ironically, those who crucified Christ thought that they had done the same thing that verse 15 mentions. Look at verse 15. When they had crucified Jesus, they thought that they had disarmed him, they thought they had made a public display of him, and they thought that they had defeated him. 
They thought that they had disarmed him, displayed him, and defeated him. But the cross actually says that he disarmed and displayed and defeated them. Amen? Glory be to God. Church, you are in Christ and with Christ. You are in Christ and with Christ when? When God's thoughts are becoming your thoughts. When God's concerns are becoming your concerns. When God's character is becoming your character. When God's activities are becoming your activities. And when God's mission is becoming your mission. Amen?